Hi, everyone, and welcome to The Next Big Thing in Health, a podcast from America's health insurance plans. I'm your co-host, Laura Evans, joined by AHIP's president and CEO, Matt Isles. This episode of The Next Big Thing in Health is brought to you by Teladoc Health partnering with health insurance providers to transform how members access healthcare. Teladoc Health works with leading health insurance providers, hospitals and health systems, and employers to ensure reliable access to high quality virtual healthcare anytime and from anywhere. Visit teladochealth.com backslash AHIP to learn more. Teladoc Health is proud to serve not only our health insurance and employer members around the world, but also our provider partners who are bringing our technology and physician capacity to bear at a time when the healthcare system is experiencing unprecedented disruption. Visit teladochealth.com backslash AHIP and download our brochure to learn how we partner with health insurance providers to transform healthcare together. And our guest today is Dr. Stephen Clasco. He's the president of Thomas Jefferson University and CEO of Jefferson Health. Dr. Clasco is a nationally recognized advocate for healthcare transformation, having served as the dean of two medical colleges and the leader of three academic health centers before becoming president and CEO at Jefferson. Dr. Clasco, thanks so much for joining us. So, Steve, it's great to have you here. Uh, you. Really excited to be able to, you know, have this conversation with you and think about what's really challenging within our healthcare system. To talk about value, um, you know, one of the things that we want to talk about today are myths in healthcare. Uh, there's a lot of uh, myths and misconceptions out there, and let's just start with one: that more healthcare is better. Um, what do you think about that? Do you think that more health care is actually better care? No, I think uh, in many, many cases, more health care is worse care. And I think, you know, I think, I think we've seen that just with the results of the Affordable Care Act. I mean, if you just, if you just think about the Affordable Care Act, the, the, the fact is that it gave more people access to a fundamentally broken, fragmented, and inequitable system that does more but doesn't necessarily have better outcomes. So I think you know we've seen lots of proof that just pumping up the system, doing more procedures, doing more of something isn't good. It's how we tend to get paid or how we tended to get paid. And, and I'll just sort of, the, the thing that really hits me is, there's a great Upton Sinclair quote I like to use called, um, it's hard to get somebody to do something when their salary depends upon them not doing it. Mm-hmm. And as long as we continue to pay people to, do lots of things, then they'll do lots of things. So it's going to take more than an incremental change to have both consumers, providers, and payers recognize, in my opinion, uh, that we've incented the wrong things. How, how do you think the consumer view changes in this, though? Right? There's it's a long-held belief that you know more is better, more expensive is better, um, but that might not always be the case. Well, look, I, I think I think we've all waited for that um, moment that the I'm as mad as hell and I'm not going to take it anymore moment of the consumers. And and I think perhaps the the pandemic, the COVID pandemic might be that case. We were just talking about this. I'm an obstetrician and I've been involved with a company that literally has been able to move testing to the home. Now, that's about one tenth the cost of going into a hospital three times a week to get a non-stress test or a biophysical profile. Uh, obviously now 
people can't get that done or don't want to do that. But think about this. Is a 25-year-old after this is pregnant going to want to drive down to Philadelphia, pay $35 to park, go to a place where there's a lot of sick people so somebody can put a, a, a monitor on her and after two hours tell her she's okay when she knows she could do that at home? So I think we will start to see consumers start to un understand, hey, why why do I have to do all these things that just seem to be more expensive and frankly more of a pain for me? And, and can I ask a follow-up question here too, Steve? I, you know, the U.S. spends nearly three trillion dollars a year on healthcare, which is significantly more right. than any other nation. Where do you see, do you see one place where we can start to rein it in? Now, look, I think that, I think we've all been, I, I won't say guilty, but we've all been part of a system that has ballooned the, the that the $3 trillion. And look, I think we have a lot to be proud of, you know, whether it's pharma or payers or, or providers, we've done some really good things. The problem is it's an impossible situation to provide all that care in an inefficient way that makes a lot of people money um, and give access to everybody. 40 years ago, my mentor at Wharton wrote a book called Medicine's Dilemmas, Infinite Needs, Finite Resources. Sound familiar? 40 years ago. He was the first one to talk about that iron triangle of access, quality, and cost. And 40 years ago, he said, if you want to increase access, increase quality, and decrease cost, it's impossible unless you disrupt the system. If you just think about politics in the last 10 or 15 years, President Obama said the Affordable Care Act will increase quality, increase access, and decrease cost and it won't be painful and it won't be disruptive? Well, it can't happen. President Trump said, I think it's gonna be like fantastic, terrific, unbelievable, and huge, but sort of meant the same thing. So at the end of the day, we have to disrupt the system. What does disruption mean? Disruption means that, you know, there's nothing that came down from Mount Sinai, not the hospital, but the, the tablets, that said that dermatologists or orthopedists should make 10 times of what family doctors make because they do more procedures. You know, I think we will need different kind of partnerships between payers and providers. So there's much, much, much more strategic alignment. I think we do need to look at pharma in a different way and, and not pay retail. So I think we, we all have our piece in this to be able to disrupt that access quality cost piece. But I think the consumers are going to be a big, big part of this now. And I think they're going to look and say, wait a second, when the pandemic hit, I didn't have to worry about banking. 30 years ago, we would have been talking about people lining up at the bank to deposit their checks on Friday. We didn't even talk about that because nobody banks in the bank. And I think you'll start to see that same kind of telebanking mentality uh, go to healthcare. Mm -hmm. I'm gonna jump around a little bit here because you just brought up the disruption word. Is, is disruption an overused buzzword in healthcare? I hate it. I hate it. Yeah, you used because, it. <laughs> because, no, well, I use it because I, 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 I value myself as, this, as a disruptor, but it also, you know, pisses off people. I mean, I, the, where I start to hate that word was I gave a talk to the European Health Forum and one of the ministers of health um, said, I agree with everything Dr. Clasco said, but we believe in non-disruptive disruption. I said, no, it made my brain explode. You're missing the whole point. So the, the reason I hate it is I do think we need disruption. 
But disruption has got to be painful for somebody. If we're going to move the dollar and a quarter of healthcare down to a dollar, somebody's got, some of us, in fact, all of us probably need to get in. If we're going to deal with end of life issues, then we have to deal with end of life issues. And that's going to be disruptive. It can't be incremental. So the reason I hate the word is because we like to use it and then go off and say, but, but you know, it won't affect me. That, that's the part of it that I hate. Well, I saw somebody use a quote that he said, it's using a negative word in a positive way is unique in attention getting it first. And now everybody uses it. So it's lost its effectiveness. But I guess if it's, you're saying if it's effective for all of us and it makes us uncomfortable moving us into a new space, then it's effective. Yeah. Look, you know, disruption means in my, in my mind that you have, totally transformed an industry in a way that some of the traditional players go away are are forever hurt and there are new players that come in and the overall system is more efficient and works better and better for the consumer so you know um i i was involved with apple back when you know it was what were what was important laptops and operating systems the first generation ipod was a disruptor because everybody laughed at steve jobs because they were making laptops and operating systems and he was saying they're not going to matter 10 years from now and i'm going to create apple gateway went away dell decreased in value microsoft had to change right um amazon was a disruptor because either places said, oh my God, I'm never gonna have a store, so I gotta go to all E, they faded away. Or Macy's, Sears, and Penny said, what a stupid fad. Now, Target and Walmart disrupted themselves by saying, we make really great stores, but we're gonna get into the E game. So, so I think it isn't a bad word, but it is a bad word to use if you're just saying, oh, I'm gonna take 3% of my providers and turn them to volume to value. Isn't that disruptive? No, it's really not. It's disruptive when inefficient hospitals literally fail. You know, it's disruptive if insurers that can't provide strategic alliances with providers literally, you know, start to see their, their, their revenues go down. That's when it's disruptive. Mm-hmm. So I, that's what I don't like. I don't like when you go to these conferences and say, you know, look at the ma- amazing disruptions we've done. We haven't disrupted healthcare. So anybody that says they're doing it, it, it's just not true. Yeah. So Steve, right now we're in the middle of probably the biggest disruption, right, that our nation has ever experienced, potentially with COVID-19, right? And there could be some wonderful things that come out the other side if we can manage through it. What are you sort of most optimistic about the types of change that we might see when we get to the other side of this? So I I think, look, I think there's two ways we could go. Um, It's very American of us to, um, once this is all done, to say, boy, that really stunk. You know, let's go back and party. Like it's 1999, to use a a, a Prince song. I don't think this will be that one. I really do think, especially in healthcare, people will start to look and say, hey, um, what, what, why has healthcare escaped the consumer revolution? 
through this crisis, you know, if you look at a Kaiser Permanente or a Geisinger, um, they were able to look at the payer side of what they did and the provider side of what they did and say, all right, well, you know, we got all the premiums. Let's help you this way, whatever. That doesn't mean you have to own an insurer if you're a provider, but I think you have to have those kind of strategic alignments. And I think that the future I see is one in which a place like Jefferson will have a, a truly data sharing and strategic alignment with a payer or payers um, that would have a different kind of conversation of, around the next pandemic that we might have had around this one. Dr. Klasko, on, on the heels of that, let me talk about the mergers and acquisitions and kind of, you know, the industry coming under fire for that. And you talk about your hospital system. Talk about how value plays into those arrangements. And, you know, there's research that found that the quality of care at hospitals acquired in, you know, um, that, that is part, that are part of these, you know, mergers and acquisitions, that the quality got worse or stayed the same. Um, can you talk a little bit about that um, and, and the activity regarding the mergers? Yeah, yeah, we're about to publish an article about what's happened. You know, we've done six mergers in five years. Uh, so we've moved from a billion dollar to hospital entity to a, um, to what'll be a $6 billion, 14 hospital entity. I think traditionally that's been right. Look, you have to look at form following function. In a, if you talk to most academic medical centers, we'll say, well, why'd you merge with that community hospital? Well, it's a hub and spoke system. Yeah, you've heard that. So what that means is, first of all, nobody wants to be a spoke, I don't think. <laughs> Secondly, what it means is there's an ROI for me paying that board, that nonprofit board, $500 million, $600 million to own their hospital so they can send more patients to my expensive, inefficient academic medical center. So yes, of course, costs are gonna go up and quality will stay the same or, or might go down. We, we embarked on a very, very, very different path. You know, when I got here, we were, we were two hospitals and a single campus university with three boards. You know, we merged the hospital and the university and we did those six mergers in five years. One was an academic merger with a design university. But our entire strategy was a hub and hub strategy. Uh, we call it healthcare with no address. How can I get, get care out as close to where that patient is? That's why we invested $35 million in telehealth. That's why we were able to move from going from 50 telehealth visits a day to 3,000 a day during the, during the pandemic. But that's why we were able to actually move cases out of our expensive and efficient academic medical center. Close, so so, so our, our, our outcomes have not been that. Our outcomes have been that the quality has stayed the same or gone up. In, 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 in most cases, and the costs have stayed the same or, or gone down. So I think, I think, look, I think that the overall, and for us, it wasn't a matter of how many hospitals I could own. Um, it was a matter of having the geographic reach and the primary care reach to really affect the kind of changes that we can, that, that we can make. You know, after the pandemic, think about this. I mean, you know, think about the, the devastation to providers. Yeah. I mean, you know, they're, 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 I mean, the average hospital our size is going to lose $150 million a month if you don't own an insurer. Wow. Now, you know, we're, we're, we're an A-rated entity that, you know, $6 billion of revenue. We will survive. But, you know, if you're a place that has 105 days cash on hand to start, which is what a lot of these hospitals have, you're not going to survive. 
So Matt, I'm curious, I want to, can I put you on the spot for a second? I'm curious sure. what your reaction is to, <laughs> to, and you don't have to answer, but your, your reaction to Dr. Clasco, um, what he just said about the loss after all of this. Yeah, you know what, I think it's going to force all of us to look at sort of how the system is designed and what makes the most sense going forward, right? If I just look, uh, you know, sort of introspectively at the insurance industry, right? There's been a lot of change and a lot of acquisitions over the past couple of years. Most of them have been around what Steve was talking about, which is, you know, vertical integration. We're trying to put together different capabilities that maybe you didn't have. So it's, you know, maybe uh, pharmacy and behavioral health and, you know, uh, uh, retail and uh, an insurance entity, right? And all of these different elements. and right it's a, it's still an experiment that we're seeing how that's going to play out i think you know trying to find those partnerships that steve was mentioning i think that's going to be the thing that changes really the system is how do you really find a strategic partner who understands you know each other's motivations and what it is that you're trying to accomplish and can work collaboratively together and share that kind of data and information and analytics and resources in a way that hasn't really happened traditionally um, and but that's going to be what we're going to have to do if we're going to make any sort of meaningful dent on costs or quality. Mm -hmm. Matt, I couldn't agree more. I think the I think when we look ten years from now, the 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 iPhone moments for whether it's insurers or or providers will be the creative partnerships that nobody could have imagined. Right. You know, our our most the most exciting thing happening at Jefferson is not a merger with a hospital. Um, actually, probably the coolest merger we did was we merged with the number three fashion design university in the country. And we <laughs> have the, and it's interesting because I met my wife on Match.com and she was the associate publisher of Vogue. So people uh, accused me of taking my personal life into our professional life, <laughs> taking a health science university with a fashion university. But we now, we're literally, that's been a huge piece with this pandemic. The whole issue of design of the human experience in healthcare. We did a lot of work with textiles. That university used to be called Philadelphia College of Textiles and Science. Yeah. We were one of the first places to look at reusing N95. So, I mean, there's a lot of creative partnerships out there, but the most exciting one for me is the partnership we're doing with General Catalyst. That's Haymont Tunisia, the guy I'm writing the book about, because I think that while the traditional jobs that we do, whether you're an insurer or a provider, that's gonna get contracted. I mean, they, they, just, they just have to. The margins are gonna get contracted. We're going to have to work for Medic Medicare or less. I think insurers uh, will get contracted, but there's going to be a trillion dollars, if not more, spent on healthcare transformation. So we partnered with um, with General Catalyst, which is a you know again initial partners of Avango and Airbnb, and we've embedded General Catalyst folks into Jefferson, and we've embedded our faculty into General Catalyst. So instead of my buying products, I'm partnering with them and in that trillion dollars. You go to Hims or you go to any one of those, uh, you know, uh, vendor vendee things, it's, it, it's ridiculous. You have 870 25 year olds telling you how they're gonna <laughs> disrupt healthcare, you know, and you know, well, what do you have? I got a revenue cycle app. Well, you're not, you're not gonna disrupt healthcare, Junior. But the, but the concept of bringing those two worlds together, I think will be real exciting. So I think when I look back 10 years from now of, of what made Jefferson great, I don't think it'll be the our clinical mergers. I think it'll be that that relationship we have with uh, with GC and frankly uh, some other technology, computer science, and 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 VC firms.
As the global leader in virtual care, Teladoc Health offers the only comprehensive solution that spans telehealth, behavioral health, and complex and chronic care at scale. Teladoc Health's flexible technology platform expands physician capacity and enables health insurance providers to overcome one of their biggest challenges, scaling to address the broad spectrum of healthcare needs across commercial, Medicare, and Medicaid populations. Visit teladochealth.com backslash AHIP and download our brochure to find out how virtual care is helping health insurance providers overcome their biggest challenges. All right, let's get to the next myth, which is that the government is in a better position to deliver a better healthcare system than the private sector. The big myth. Dr. Clasco, what's your now, take on that now, one? Can the government really really coexist or compete fairly with yeah. private enterprise? So, so I, I am, again, made another statement that got me in trouble. I said, look, Bernie Sanders is 100% right about the problem, that we haven't really recognized that, 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 that that uh, the United States of America needs to provide everybody healthcare access. He couldn't be more wrong about the solution. Um, look, the fact is that there's not a one size fits all. And uh, um, uh, the, the concept of a, of a Medicare for all without even talking about the painful things that would have to happen for that to happen, it, it's, it's just so easy to say, right? I mean, it's easy to come up with three words and say, we're done, you know? Again, the real issues are how we pay providers, how we can cut the middle by strategically aligning folks, how we deal with end of, with end of life issues. I mean, just saying Medicare for all, and you know, but not dealing with end of life issues. Just saying Medicare for all, and again, paying dermatologists ten times what you pay family docs. You know, yes, that would obviously uh, cut out a piece of 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 the insurance puzzle but it would just literally create a whole nother cottage industry like it has done in other countries of people wanting the level of care that, that a private system gives them. So um, no, I'm not in favor of, of, of government taking over the entire system. I think, um, I think we've seen how that works. I think we've seen, I don't think a one size fits all thing works in the pandemic, by the way. But maybe it's not taking over and just playing devil's advocate. Maybe it's not taking over, but help. Maybe it's taking a piece of the pie or maybe it's I'm just, you know, is it thinking yeah. outside of the box? Like you said, evolving into something new where it's not been working. Well, if you really thought if you really thought the insurance industry was the problem, you would probably come up with some kind of single payer by state model where you would do an RFP by state. Have the federal government come up with some general guidelines. Each state could come up with their own guidelines. And then you do an RFP. And it could be a private insurer. It could be, you know, Vermont and California could say, yeah, let's let the government do it. I mean, that would be the experiment that you would do if you said we have too fragmented uh, a system. I mean, I, I don't disagree with the folks that think government should take over that, that the fragmentation that exists in, in, in the insurance industry, industry can be a problem. Look, we have we probably have six insurers, you know, six primary insurers uh, among our patients, and they all have different rules. They all have different labs. I think that creates a level of inefficiency. There's no way of, of, of arguing that. And obviously, if there was one insurer um, and, and we could understand the rules, we could probably be more efficient. There'd be less administration. There is some um, 
seductiveness to, to, to that concept. But government by itself tends to be a place that tends to balloon and tends to be inefficient. There haven't been too many examples where that's the case. What really hit me, I got asked to be the American on a uh, panel uh, that the UK asked to look at the NHS. So I got to see the good, the bad, and the ugly of, um, of, 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 of the NHS. And, you know, there's no perfect system. You know, it, it really does give everybody access. People that have money tend to go toward the private system. Um, and if you need elective cases, um, I think you wait a whole lot longer. And people that, that, that have money can get them done quicker. But nobody has to mortgage their house because they have cancer. Mm -hmm. um, so, so look, I think if there was a perfect system, we'd all do it. Um, uh, but you know, the people, the NHS is as frustrated with their progress, even though they recognize they've done a great job of giving everybody access, they haven't been able to customize it well enough. My, my dream is that we would get, you know, a hip, AHA, you know, the American pharmaceuticals and say, look, you know, we've had a good life guys. You know, we, we provided great care. We've all made wonderful products to get the, the gig is up. You know, let's stop blaming each other. Let's look in the mirror. I wrote a book called We Can Fix Healthcare of the Futures Now that posited exactly that happened. There was an alien invasion and all we could <laughs> do is look in the mirror. And we came out with 12 disruptors for the demise of the old healthcare. I mean, to me, we, we need that kind of aha moment or we're just gonna keep fighting each other. I'm gonna say it's the insurers and pharma. Pharma's gonna say it's the insurers and the provider. You know, you guys are gonna say it's pharma and us. So I, I think we, we, need a, we need that kind of aha moment of getting together. And what I was going to say is when you think about some of the challenges that we face in the healthcare system today, I think you articulated them really well, Steve, is would we be taking a step forward or a step backwards by just having one entity do everything together? And we know how well government manages other sort of services that when they're the only provider. And when you think about the type of innovations that we need in our system, and that we want to encourage, I don't think by having sort of a single entity do that, that we're necessarily gonna make progress in that regard, right? If you think about how are we addressing things like social determinants of health and paying for transportation, nutrition, and I, I don't think that's all gonna be solved by having sort of a single government entity do that. I think we would probably find it much more difficult to have CMS pay every single transportation provider rather than go to a health system or a health plan and say, you know what, you figure this out. You need to take care of these patients and you'll be rewarded if you do better by them uh, versus having us contract with every single transportation company to go and you know, figure out how do you get patients to get to the doctor more efficiently. I want to get to the last myth, which is that um, artificial intelligence needs to be added to every aspect of healthcare to improve delivery cost and uh, efficacy. And um, Andrew Chang, who is the Chief Intelligence and Innovation Officer at Children's Hematology and Oncology Clinics, he said that we tend to overestimate the effect of a technology in the short run and underestimate the effect in the long run. So do, what's your take on this? Do you think that it needs to be added to every aspect of healthcare, or do we just kind of need to understand that this is just the beginning and that deep learning is exciting and we need to kind of let it run its course? 
Oh, look, if I didn't want to go directly to heaven and work for a nonprofit like, like <laughs> I'm doing today, I would just start a company and put A next to I and I get $200 million <laughs> worth of funding. So I think, look, I think, first of all, there's no such thing as artificial intelligence. It's augmented intelligence. That's number one. Number two, I think, um, I think Andrew's right. You know, a lot of people have said that. I do think that the simple fact is that technology will replace a lot of what we do. That there was a quote, technology will replace 80% of what doctors do. And then there was another quote, any doctor that can be replaced by a computer should be. So what I think is we need to get away from talking about the internet of things and talking about the internet of you. Mm-hmm. And, and, to, and to me, where I see the fourth industrial revolution, not just AI, but the fourth industrial revolution, AI, 5G, robotics, genomics, is creating a transformation in healthcare that starts with you. Mm -hmm. So let me give you a few examples where I do think it'll be well. I think we need to go from static data to continuous data. I, I can't tell you how asinine it is that in 2020, we still have the yearly physical. So I'm going to go, I'm going to go and once a year go to some human doctor that will take my blood pressure, you know, do an EKG and say, okay, today on April 14th, 2020, your blood pressure is this, your pulse is this, your EKG is this, this is what you should do for the next year. And even stupid people that spend $10,000 to go to Mayo and get an executive physical, they come out with a little USB and say, oh, you know, you're a little overweight, you're a little, you're a little too stressed, you can have a better relationship, you know, these five things, you have a little more too much calcium. Okay, thanks for the USB. Next year, I go and spend $10,000. You're a little overweight, you're a little too stressed. So the, so the, the, the revolution will be, I think, in, in continuous data. We're working on wearables, you know, again, right. cool that we merge with a textile university. But, you know, the, the future I see is you'll have asthma. You'll go to bed at night with pajamas. They'll measure your respiratory rate, your heart rate, your temperature, et cetera. You'll wake up in the morning and say, hey, Alexa, I'd, I'd like to listen to uh, the daily podcast. And so before you do that, you know, your respirations were, were really laborly. I want you to take an extra inhaler, then I'll put on the daily podcast. And I think you'll have continuous data coming, you know, a little bit of like what, what Lovago is doing, a little bit like the pregnancy company I talked about. So mm-hmm. to me, that'll be the well. Now, the one other thing about that is then we have to change what we do in humans. You want one, and I will use this word again, disruption. We need a real disruption in how we select and educate medical students and nurses. Mm. It is ridiculous that the, uh, that the gateway to medical school is I can memorize the Krebs cycle or I can memorize organic chemistry formulas when they're all on my, you know, super size iPhone. You know? I mean, it's ridiculous. So we still accept students based on size, GPA, med cats and organic chemistry grades. Yet we're amazed doctors aren't more empathetic, communicative and creative. Yeah. And it, I'm, a, I'm a, a fellow of the World Economic Forum at, at Davos, Jack Ma, the CEO of Alibaba said, when, when we created cars, we didn't try to get humans to run faster. When we created planes, we didn't try to get humans to fly. Yeah. Doctors or, or people will never be as smart as computers, but, but computers could never be as wise as people. So the question for us, and, and we spent a lot of time at Jefferson. In fact, we had the first international conference on the ethics of human in the middle. Kai-Fu Lee wrote a book about online meeting offline. What's the role of the human in the middle? So to me, the, the real transformation is, is going to be in what kind of humans do we need? 
We need right. humans that can be self-aware, empathetic, culturally competent. And I don't care if they can memorize the prep cycle. Yeah, researchers, that's important. But do you care if your psychiatrist or OBGYN was the best in school at memorizing stuff? No. So to me, I think that, that that'll be a chance. I think AI, AI will be a long-term game changer. I think it'll also make a lot of difference in social determinants of health. Look, think about food deserts. Food deserts exist because in my zip code in Philadelphia, I can walk to five Whole Foods or Trader Joe's. In a zip code about 10 miles away, the closest thing that they can walk to is a bodega. Mm -hmm. But once you start to have drone delivery, you talk about government policy. If I ruled the world, government policy would be, <laughs> Mrs. Jones, if you're willing to at only serve your family healthy food, you can get one and a half times government supported food. And by the yeah. way, we'll drone delivery it to you. So you don't have to get Fritos and Cokes at, um, at, at your local bodega. So yes, I think technology can make a difference. It's not the difference. It's that combination of technology and the human spirit. Just like the iPhone is democratized, Things we don't, you didn't get up in the morning this morning and say, Oh, I think I'll tell a bank. <laughs> it's just the banking went from 90% in the bank to 90% at home to the point where much more people can utilize those services. Many more people can get into the, if you will, even people that have very limited incomes can get into investing because of what Vanguard did and Jack Bogle and with ETFs. And if you have $5, you can invest it on the internet. Yeah, yeah. No, that's that's totally what needs to happen in healthcare. Yeah, no, totally makes sense. And Chang, who I quoted at the beginning of all this, he also said, machines are fast, but kind of stupid, and humans are slow, but kind of smart. But it should have been, humans are slow, but kind of compassionate. That's how I'll change that based on what you just said. That's good. So Matt, I'm curious what your, what your overall takeaway take uh, take is from this whole conversation, kind of your, your boil down. Well, certainly, Steve, thank you so much. Uh, really provocative uh, talking with you. Uh, I'd say the partnerships piece, really, and how we can use this transformative moment uh, in our healthcare system to really think a little bit differently in terms of how health systems and insurers and pharma and all different pieces can really work together differently coming out of this uh, pandemic uh, and how we really can step back and say, you know what, things need to change and we want to be part of the solution. I think that's one of the biggest takeaways for me uh, out of this entire conversation. Great. Awesome. All right, you guys, thank you so much. This has been a See really good conversation. Virtual care is helping more people access high quality care for a broad range of conditions while avoiding the doctor's office, urgent care, and the emergency room. Visit teledochealth.com backslash AHIP to learn more. Recognizing the critical role that virtual care plays in the delivery system, Teladoc Health helps health insurance providers care for members, including their highest risk populations, by offering high quality virtual solutions as the front door to care. Visit teledochealth.com backslash AHIP to download our brochure and learn how virtual care is becoming the preferred entry point into healthcare. Thanks again for tuning into this episode of The Next Big Thing in Health. If you like what you heard, tell a friend and remember to leave a rating or review. 